I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. My name is Mark Ledbury. I'm the director of the Power Institute and the chair of the Art History Department at the moment at the University of Sydney. The campuses of the University of Sydney are built on the traditional lands of, among others, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I wish to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and welcome any Aboriginal and Indigenous members of our community here tonight. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce not only our guest speaker tonight, but also to celebrate the entire project of the Photography Ontology Symposium organised by the Photographic Cultures Research Group here at, at the University, by the Art and Document Research Group at the Sydney College of the Arts, but principally, I think, driven by the great talents of Natalia Lusti and our own Donna Brett. And I want to thank them very much, first of all, and also thank as I must, the funders and sponsors of this, uh, who are many, uh, a long and distinguished list, particularly, of course, in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, the School of Literature, Arts and Media, a School of Languages and Cultures, and, uh, of course, the Power Institute, too. It's, it's, it's a great... The whole uh, symposium is a great treat. The programme is fantastic. But I specifically for tonight want to thank all our colleagues at Sydney Ideas, uh, which is a fantastic venture of the last 10 years, and I want to thank, obviously, Meredith Hall, but particularly Ira Ferris, who's done so much to make this particular event happen, and also to Vicky Mallett at the Power Institute, who's also done a great deal uh, in the logistics for this. As you will know, the Power has for 50 years made available ideas in the visual arts, talks, symposia, and publications, and for those of you Tonight might be interested in several power titles, including one by the last speaker before this one, Melissa Miles, whose Language of Light and Dark was published last year, a very thoughtful study of Australian photography, which many of you will know, dealing with issues of race and colour, which will be very much foregrounded tonight. But we also have Anne Ferrand's Shadowland, Jackie Redgate Mirrors, and other books which represent some of the most interesting work being done by contemporary Australian photographers. So, it's time to introduce our speaker, which is what I'm really here for. I'm delighted to be able to welcome our distinguished keynote speaker tonight, Sean Michelle Smith, who, as many of you will know, is a scholar, a preeminent scholar, of the history and theory of photography of race and gender in visual culture. She is Professor of Visual and Critical Studies at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, as she previously had taught at St. Louis and Washington State Universities. She's the author of several books, including most recently At the Edge of Sight, Photography in the Unseen, published by Duke in 2013, which won the 2014 Lawrence W. Levine Award for the best book in American cultural history from the Organization of American Historians, and the 2014 Jean Goldman Book Prize from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And it's a book with its wonderful, I mean, for those of you, many of you might know it, but for those of you that don't, it has a very surprising and fresh and and very convincing privileging of pictorialism, which was never anyone's um, sort of, uh, you know, most trendy uh, uh, aspect of photography. But it's particularly the pictorialist portraits of F. Holland Day as a challenge, I think, to the camera as a kind of reinforcer of norms and a, and a eugenics advancing technology, if you like. And it's, it's a very subtle and attentive book, to, especially to the blurred and the shady and the, the sort of downright hidden what what, uh, to pardon those who know Chateaubriand better than me, but what Chateaubriand might have described as le vague, the sort of vagueness, the blurred, rather than the punctum, if you like. The study followed her deeply engaged cultural and racial political studies of later 19th and early 20th century visual culture, photography on the colour line, W.B. Du Bois, race and, the vi and visual culture, which came out in 2004, and American archives, gender, race and class in visual culture, uh, that came out in 1999. 
I think that that body of work has argued that the visual field is vital in helping to us because it helped to constitute racial and class and social identity and moulded visions of the family and intimate relationship. And it's in that particular critique and analysis of that material that her work has, I think, really contributed to fresh and challenging understandings of, of not just of photography, but of a swathe of visual culture, both photographic and indeed non-photographic. And her interest in the way photography acts to define or challenge racial understandings has de- is demonstrated also in a recent um, special issue of the journal Melus on visual culture and race, and in her edited volumes, particularly, I think many, many of you may know, the striking and very difficult lynching photographs that came out in 2007, which was co-authored with Dora Appel. She's the recipient of many honours and fellowships, including spells at the George O'Keefe Museum Research Centre, the Schomburg Centre, and she's also, many of you might not know this, a practising artist working creatively and provocatively, with, often with found photographs, attentive to pose, to gesture, and often transposing or... Uh, pro- provocatively restaging, if you like, in the Abu Ghraib series, or even in Hey Little Man, or in When the Train Rolls In. And she makes us think again and again against, about gesture and performance, both in photography and beyond it. So it's a great pleasure to introduce such a very distinguished practitioner and scholar. Her title tonight is Looking Forward and Looking Back Rashid Johnson and Frederick Douglass on Photography. Please welcome Sean Michelle Smith. Mark, thank you so much. I want to add my thanks to all of the institutional supporters um, who helped make this symposium happen, and especially, of course, to Donna and Natalia. And Donna has been uh, busy organizing me and getting me across the ocean and continues to organize me here, and I really appreciate it. So I'm delighted to be here, and the talk that um, I'm giving this evening is drawn from new work, which I'm tentatively calling Photographic Returns. It's focused on contemporary uh, photographers based in the U.S. who are looking back to um, important moments in U.S. history and often African-American history that also became important to the history of photography. The man stares at the camera solemnly. He's turned slightly, but fixes his eyes on the lens, anticipating later viewers. He's dressed formally in a black suit, white shirt, and striped copper tie. Light touches his features and draws them out of darkness. A soft beard dusts his cheek and chin. His hair, parted on the far left, hangs in shoulder-length locks along his face. This is Rashid Johnson's photograph of 2003, titled Self-Portrait with My Hair Parted Like Frederick Douglass. In it, the artist has clearly made a careful study of Samuel J. Miller's striking daguerreotype portrait of Douglass, produced circa 1847 to 1852. He sits at the same angle to the camera and frames himself tightly at mid-chest. He replicates the light that illuminates the orator's forehead and mimics the serious look on his face. Johnson wears a modern suit, approximating in type, if not in kind, Douglas's elaborate formal attire. The two images appear as colored inversions of one another. As deep black offsets the golden tones of Johnson's face, the warm hues of a brass mat frame the gray shades of Douglas's image. 
Johnson's self-portrait after Douglas elicits a number of questions about photography that are especially compelling in light of the predictions that Douglas himself made about the medium. In 1861 and again in 1865, Douglas proclaimed that photography would have far-reaching effects on self-understanding. He proposed that photography made visible a model of the self as object. And somewhat surprisingly, he maintained that such objectification would serve as a foundation for social progress. But even as Douglas believed that photography forecast new futures, he also understood that photographs would uniquely keep the past alive in the present. In other words, photography would create forward momentum with a retrospective pull. Johnson's self-portrait after Douglas activates and responds to these propositions, offering his own self-representation with one eye on the past. Johnson has worked with 19th century photographic techniques, and therefore I think it's likely that he would be attentive to the peculiarities of the daguerreotype, the first form of commercially viable photography. The daguerreotype was often likened to a mirror and even called a mirror with a memory because it seemed to reflect the image it captured on its polished metal surface. Further, the daguerreotype's image, like a mirror image, was laterally reversed, and one can see that effect in the reversed button placket of Douglas's shirt and vest in Miller's portrait. Johnson's contemporary self-portrait made with a large format film camera would not be laterally reversed in the final print. So therefore, it's clear that Johnson modeled his portrait after Douglas's image, not his actual appearance sitting before the camera. In other words, presenting himself to the camera with his own hair parted on the left, Johnson reproduces Douglas's reflection, not his actual hairstyle. Indeed, in a painted portrait of Douglas, one sees that the abolitionist customarily parted his hair on the right, not on the left. Thus, Johnson performs a reversal in order to replicate the image. This kind of slippage is common in Johnson's work. Huey Copeland has characterized it as marked by an aesthetics of misdirection, in which, quote, meaning, racial and otherwise, is generated by visual phenomenon that, gesture, that consistently gesture elsewhere for their charge, end quote. Johnson's self-portrait with my hair parted like Frederick Douglass points directly toward the orator through its title and once again reproduces one of his most famous portraits through pose and dress. But the work also misdirects because in Johnson's self-portrait, besides the part, which is actually transposed, the hair is all wrong. A much more accurate approximation of Douglas's hair is found in one of Johnson's later images titled The New Negro Escapist Social and Athletic Club, Emmett, of 2008. Emmett presents a doubled portrait as if the subject is laterally reversed in a mirror. It's impossible to discern which is the original exposure and which is the reversed image, the reflection? Two versions of the man seem to face the camera side by side, joined at the shoulder. The black background, suit, and deeply parted hair of Emmett resemble Johnson's self-portrait after Douglas, which of course resembles Miller's portrait of Douglas. 
But here, in the doubled image of Emmett, it's as if the mechanics of the daguerreotype are laid bare, the lateral reversal revealed. The titling and doubling of Emmett also gesture elsewhere. Indeed, they summon the infamous images of Emmett Till, who was murdered in Mississippi in 1955. Devastating before and after images of Till circulated widely in the African-American press. One image presented the young man standing tall and beaming. The other showed his mutilated corpse. Johnson's Emmett offers paired photographs that recall Emmett Till, but here one is spared the image of the brutal murder. The artist has simply reproduced and flipped the image. Such redirected doubling recalls the mirrored images of the daguerreotype, and Emmett appears with Frederick Douglass' hair. Johnson's doubled images also evoke the doubled conception of self famously articulated by W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk, 1903. Du Bois defined double consciousness as, quote, the sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, end quote. For Du Bois, double consciousness was a racialized and racist dynamic in which the eyes of others were those of whites who looked at African Americans with contempt. In Johnson's work, the doubled image, I'm sorry, in Johnson's work, the doubled look becomes a distinctly intraracial gaze across time, in which Johnson looks at Douglas and Till and imagines them looking back. As Copeland has said of this body of work, quote, Taken together, these images fantasize and imagine space outside history where black men and those who love them might congregate, end quote. It is the persistence of the photograph that enables such looks across time. Douglas recognized the photograph's durability and its status as an heirloom as preserving forces in the wake of slavery's social death. As early as 1861, he understood the power of the photograph's longevity, a fact that Roland Barthes would make famous over a century later in Camera Lucida. The photograph is destined to outlive its subject, and therefore one's image circulates beyond the bounds of one's life. And um, I love the way that in Melissa's talk um, earlier today, she noted that it's you know, precisely that fact that the photograph outlives the subject's life that invites others to reinvent and reimagine, and even in the case of Rashid Johnson, sort of reenact the photograph. Okay, so um, the photograph is destined to outlive its subject, and therefore one's image circulates beyond the bounds of one's life. In this way, for Bart, the photograph signals the subject's death at every turn. But for Douglas, the photograph's stability across generations is a conserving, if also conservative, force. What Julie Rodriguez Widholm has said of Johnson's images is also true of Douglas's understanding of photographs. Quote, they're located in an uncertain temporal space that looks both back in time and toward the future. End quote. Johnson underscores the persistence of the photograph in his work, asking one to see in his homage to Douglas and Till the influence of previous generations. 
He mixes elements of images from different moments and merges them in new visions. In this way, he highlights the transformative objectification and temporal disruption of the photograph that Douglas understood to be central to its progressive power. And that one is supposed to be blank for a second. Douglas formulated his thoughts on photography in pictures and progress, a lecture he first delivered on December 3, 1861, at the Tremont Temple in Boston. The audience was surprised by his topic and less than enthusiastic about his reflections on photography. In fact, one commentator called the lecture nearly a total failure. As the Civil War waged, everyone expected Douglas, the former slave and well-known anti-slavery activist, to give a rousing speech about slavery and abolition. Instead, on that winter evening, Douglas spoke about the revolutionary power of photography. When Douglas publicly embraced the medium, photography was roughly 20 years old. As we've seen, he was well acquainted with one of its earliest forms, the daguerreotype. By 1861, a new kind of image, the carte de visite, had recently been invented, and it greatly increased the availability of the photograph. Whereas the daguerreotype was a single positive image object, this new form of photography created a negative from which any number of positive prints could be reproduced. The new technology was fast and inexpensive, and at the time of Douglas's lecture, photography could truly be said to be in the hands of almost everyone. Curiously, in proclaiming his enthusiasm for photography in 1861, Douglas returns to the earlier technology, the daguerreotype. He sees in photography a new means of representation and even the dawn of a new era. And for this reason, he's interested in the advent of the medium as much as in its contemporary manifestations. To capture the potential of a radical new beginning, he returns to the the narrative of photography's invention. In Pictures in Progress, he praises, quote, the great father of our modern picture, Louis Daguerre, for the multitude, variety, perfection, and cheapness of his pictures, end quote. Douglas goes on to proclaim, quote, Daguerre, by simple but all abounding sunlight, has converted the planet into a picture gallery. As munificent in the exalted arena of art, as in the radiation of light and heat, the god of day not only decks the earth with rich fruit and beautiful flowers, but studs the world with pictures. Daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, photographs, and electrotypes, good and bad, now adorn or disfigure all our dwellings. Men of all conditions may see themselves as others see them. What was once the exclusive luxury of the rich and great is now within reach of all, end quote. Douglas emphasizes photography's photography's democratizing powers, celebrating the accessibility of the medium for ordinary people. He declares, quote, the humblest servant girl may now possess a picture of herself such as the wealth of kings could not purchase 50 years ago, end quote. Leveling the social hierarchies of portraiture, photography offered a seemingly universal tool of self-representation. 
The daguerreotype appealed to Douglas for a number of reasons, and the material qualities of the images may have been particularly meaningful to him. As many scholars have noted, the viewer of the daguerreotype sees herself reflected in the mirror-like image. In this way, the daguerreotype seems to unite viewer and viewed in the same space of reflection, inviting and even requiring the viewer to see herself in relation to the photographed subject. The daguerreotype is also unusual in that it flickers between negative and positive as it's held and tilted, making subjects appear both alive and dead, black and white. Marcy Dynius imagines that this aspect of the daguerreotype might have held particular importance for Douglas, representing, quote, the dual racial identity that Douglas embodied and experienced as his slave mother's and white master's son, end quote. Whether or not one takes the the flickering of the daguerreotype as a racial metaphor, the instability of the image is indeed intriguing. As the genre of photography most fleeting and fragile, even as it's also solidly material, the daguerreotype serves as an appropriate medium for representing a fugitive freedom. As Celeste Marie Bernier notes, quote, just as Douglas was a fugitive slave, so too did the daguerreotype record a fugitive image, as elusive and ephemeral as it was palpable and real, end quote. The daguerreotype then offered Douglas a unique emblem of both photographic fixity and fugitivity, and in this way provided, provided a compelling representation of slavery's contradictions. The analogy between fleeting image and fugitive slave is more fundamental than one might at first suppose. Indeed, both trouble the distinctions between persons and property. The fugitive is, as Stephen Best explains, quote, two persons in one, pilfered property and indebted person, object of property and subject of contract, end quote. The fugitive slave who is forced to steal himself is categorically defined as both subject and object, as both person and property. Photography enacted a surprisingly similar blurring of these distinctions in the 19th century. As Best has argued, the introduction of mechanically reproductive devices, such as the camera, encouraged people, quote, to secure property rights in heretofore inalienable aspects of their personhood, their visual image, ideas, facial expressions, and even vocal style, end quote. In other words, after the advent of photography, labor was no longer the only alienable property right. Increasingly, one could claim intellectual property rights in one's image. Remarkably, then, the problem of the fugitive slave as both subject and object parallels the changing definitions of legal personhood introduced by photography. Douglas, once a fugitive slave himself, seized on photography's alienation of the subject and saw its capacities for objectification as crucial to its social power. One can't overstate the importance that Douglas accorded pictures. He argued that it was the picture-making faculty that determined what it meant to be human. 
picture-making and picture-appreciating distinguished men from animals. Quote, the process by which man is able to invert his own subjective consciousness into the objective form, considered in all its range, is in truth the highest attribute of man's nature, end quote. A person's ability to objectify herself becomes for Douglas the essence of being human. Photography realizes a defining feature of humanity and one that's surprisingly resonant with the standing of the fugitive slave. In photography, Douglas finds an analogy to his own confounding legal status, one that he deems the very indicator of the human. As picture-making uniquely defines human nature, it also serves for Douglas as an impetus for progress. Picture-making and viewing provide a catalyst for social change because these practices uniquely enable criticism. According to Douglas, quote, it is the picture of life contrasted with the fact of life, the ideal contrasted with the real, which makes criticism possible. Where there is no criticism, there is no progress, end quote. By making ourselves objects of observation and contemplation, we can begin to imagine better selves and better futures. For Douglas, portraits uniquely enable us, quote, to see our interior selves as distinct personalities, as though looking in a glass, end quote. Further, our ability to objectify ourselves produces the potential for, quote, self-criticism, out of which comes the highest attainments of human excellence, end quote. Pictures enable us to see ourselves as if from the outside and from this more distanced view to contemplate and assess ourselves. Encouraging self-critique in this way, pictures are the very foundation of progress and photographic portraits can inspire social change. To transform subjective consciousness into the objective form is a process of alienation. Further, it's a form of alienation sanctioned by intellectual property law and by the laws of slavery. The objectification of one's image in photographs allowed one to claim property rights in that image, to own an aspect of oneself as property. In a much more substantial way, the fugitive slave who stole himself as object was subject to a radical alienation. Both forms of alienation troubled the boundaries of legal personhood, although, of course, they did so with dramatically different consequences. It's somewhat, it's somewhat curious, then, that Douglas, once a fugitive slave, would embrace photography so enthusiastically and perform the objectification of himself so extensively. Through photography, Douglas realized a new model of personhood, a model in which the subject could be alienated as property, but through that objectification could also claim a new kind of self-ownership and ultimately a new form of self-understanding. For Douglas, the path to personal growth is through the critical contemplation of oneself as object. Photography provides all subjects an opportunity for improvement through an objectified status that recalls slavery. This is to take objectification to its most extreme form, 
But how else should one understand Douglas's thoughts on photography? How else might a formerly enslaved man contemplate alienation? Douglas is not alone in sensing the power of objectification through photography. What's unique about his view is that he understands such objectification as the defining feature of humanity and also as the path to progress. Writing more than a century later, Bart also understood photography as a process of objectification. As he contemplated his own dislike of being photographed, he mused, quote, the photograph, the one I intend, represents that very subtle moment when, to tell the truth, I'm neither subject nor object, but a subject who feels he is becoming an object, end quote. Resisting objectification, Bart proclaims, quote, it is my political right to be a subject which I must protect, end quote. The very habit of composing oneself for the camera, of crafting one's image, was for Bart a sundering of the self. The process through which Douglas proclaimed himself as a subject was one in which Bart only had political rights to lose. As Laura Wexler has argued, quote, Bart experienced submission to photography in much the same way that Frederick Douglass experienced submission to slavery as social death. But Bart starts out alive and then dies into his picture, whereas the slave starts out as a social corpse and is animated through the photograph, end quote. I think it's important not to overstate the analogy between slavery and photography, for clearly the dehumanization of slavery in, nowhere, in no way compares to Bart's discomfort before the camera. Nevertheless, I think it's also important to recognize that for both Douglas and Bart, photography activates a new way of objectifying the subject. It asks one to see oneself as an object, as others might. For Bart, this marks the end of his sovereign subjectivity, but for Douglas, it enables him to claim self-possession. Samuel J. Miller's portrait of Douglas, made sometime between 1847 and 1852 in Akron, Ohio, remains one of the most striking images of the orator. The daguerreotype was made at a moment of tremendous transition in Douglas's life. Just after his legal emancipation had been purchased, and during the years of his break with abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. One can imagine, then, that Douglas crafted his portrait to convey his new independence and his new status as citizen subject. So how did Douglas greet the camera to represent such momentous transformation? Finely dressed, carefully coiffed, according to the conventions of middle-class portraiture. But beyond such trappings, the image does not adhere to middle-class standards. It does not mimic the space of the parlor, as do so many 19th-century portraits. Instead, Douglas sits at an angle to the camera, tightly framed and isolated in the image. The cameras come in close to focus on his head, shoulders, and chest, accentuating his face and solemn stare. As Bernier has proposed, his daguerreotype, quote, adheres very closely to the conventions of heroic portraiture, end quote. In Alan Trachtenberg's memorable words, Douglas is photographed as an illustrious American. 
Douglas's portrait announces his self-possession, but it remains shadowed by the contradictions of slavery. Indeed, Douglas's freedom was purchased according to the dictates of slavery. In 1846, supporters in England paid for his emancipation, an act that secured his safety, even as it also reinforced the logic of slavery whereby subjects could be bought and sold as objects. As Douglas outlines in his narrative of 1845, he had already emancipated himself through his learning, through his fight with his master Covey, and through his escape. But his self-emancipation was not and would not be recognized by all. While slavery endured, legal freedom had to be secured according to the terms of the institution, through purchase. Douglas acquiesced so that he might continue his work of abolition without the constant threat of capture. Therefore, his portrait in freedom is perplexing as it represents a legal freedom defined both against and according to the terms of the institution from which he escaped. As a man someone once and recently claimed to own, how could Douglas be confirmed in his self-possession? Would he ever be truly free while slavery, while slavery persisted? Would anyone? And what about the afterlife of slavery in a post-emancipation period? If the law could accommodate people alienated as property, wasn't the self-possession of all subjects put under pressure? In Miller's daguerreotype, Douglas asserts a self-possession he knows to be precarious. As Ginger Hill has argued, for Douglas, the portrait becomes, quote, a way to accumulate characteristics of self-possession. It does not reflect, but makes a self, end quote. The daguerreotype becomes a vehicle through which one can display self-containment and control. As slavery unhinged the idea that self-possession was innate, racial discourses intervened to shore up self-possession as a privilege for whites only. As Matthew Fry Jacobson has argued, self-possession was a racially contested status in the 19th century. American citizens were presumed to have self-possession, quote, a condition already denied legally to Africans in slavery and figuratively to all non-white or heathen peoples in prevailing conceptions of humanity, end quote. If enslaved Africans were denied self-possession, what of fugitive slaves and free African-Americans? Could they ever claim to be self-possessed citizens in the United States? Douglas understood that legal emancipation was insufficient. He also had to secure his image as a free man, and he did so through repeated photographic performances. He reenacted his freedom and self-possession by objectifying himself as image over and over again. According to Hill, quote, the circulation of these pictures helped create and guarantee his citizen status, visually proclaiming Douglas's natural right to own property and thus be seen as equal, which is to say autonomous and free. Both the attention to detail within each act of self-representation and the repetition of that act foreground Douglas's precarious claim to such social status of equality, and also the fact that he understood such states of possession and recognition as systems of accumulation, end quote. The repetition of his performance for the camera asserted his self-possession. 
Although clearly optimistic about the promise of photography, Douglas was also highly attuned to the importance of the struggle over representation. He knew photographs circulated in a contested visual culture. Describing it as a mighty power, Douglas proclaimed, quote, this picture-making faculty is flung out into the world, like all others, subject to a wild scramble between contending interests and forces, end quote. He understood, as Sarah Blackwood has argued, quote, that the visual portrait was an active site upon which the fight for African-American political representation was taking place, end quote. As the medium offered men and women an unprecedented opportunity for self-representation, it offered African-Americans that opportunity as they were making claims on new legal, political, and social identities in flux. Douglas sought to challenge racist representations that cast African-Americans as less than human. As early as 1849, he decried the difficulty of securing realistic portraits of African-Americans at the hands of white artists. He declared, quote, it seems to us next to impossible for white men to take likenesses of black men without most grossly exaggerating their distinctive features, end quote. Even the daguerreotype, the technology Douglas lauded, could be manipulated to serve conceptual distortions. In 1850, Louis Agassiz commissioned Joseph Zeely to make a series of daguerreotypes of enslaved men and women to serve as evidence for his theory of polygenesis. In these contested cultural contexts, photography might serve as a political tool to challenge racist hierarchies. But it would not do so automatically. One would have to use the technology to perform subjectivity and claim a place in public and political spheres. For Douglas, photography enabled a subject to present himself as the fully human object of his own gaze. Douglas celebrated photography as a progressive tool, but he also declared pictures decidedly conservative. Once captured, one's image could be considered, quote, a fixed fact, public property, end quote. Douglas understood that one would have to fight conformity to one's image. One would have to use the photograph as a measure of self to be contemplated, not clung to. Further, one would have to wrestle with both the public and the private property of the image. The enduring photograph promised to keep not only oneself, but also one's family members fixed before one's eyes. Douglas proclaimed, quote, it is evident that the great cheapness and universality of pictures must exert a powerful, though silent, influence upon the ideas and sentiment of present and future generations. The family is the fountainhead of all mental and moral influence, and the presence there of the miniature forms and faces of our loved ones, whether separated um, from us by time and space or by the silent countenances of eternity, must act powerfully upon the minds of all, end quote. In the proliferation and persistence of photographs, Douglas saw a retrospective force that could shape the future. Photographs would preserve the ancestral ties obliterated by slavery, providing a visual lineage to confront social death. But even in this most political power of sentiment, the photograph, 
providing an impetus toward progress, would also keep one looking back. Douglas delivered his lecture, Pictures in Progress, one final time in 1865. In the later version, he acknowledged the seeming transgression of his desire to lecture on photography in light of the Civil War. But he persisted with his topic because he believed, quote, each new period and each new condition seeks its needed and appropriate representation, end quote. For Douglas, photography would provide an appropriate representation for the dynamic new period ahead. The new era would be one of freedom, a status that Douglas struggled to represent. The definition of personhood had been fundamentally unsettled by slavery. What if slavery would persist, would persist in fugitivity in this new age? By encouraging all subjects to objectify themselves as property, photography would make the lingering conundrum of slavery's persons as property a shared aspect of humanity. Douglas searched for the appropriate representation for this new condition. He intuited, as John Stauffer has argued, quote, that words could not represent the sensation of freedom, end quote. In 1862, as the Emancipation Proclamation was about to go into effect, quote, Douglas had doubts about prose being the appropriate form to describe the dawn of this new age, end quote. He sensed that prose would fail to capture the radical revolution of freedom because, according to Stauffer, quote, a sharp break in linear chronology could not effectively be conveyed in prose, end quote. But such a break could be represented in photography, and for Douglas, the age of freedom would also be the age of pictures. Photography exemplifies a break in linear time, capturing, as Ulrich Baer has argued, the radical nonlinearity of time, rupturing narratives of historical progression. It brings the past and also the future into the present. This temporal disruption is the contingency of photography that Walter Benjamin described in the 1930s, the radical spark of futurity that reaches across time to claim its viewer. According to Benjamin, quote, no matter how artful the photographer, no matter how carefully posed his subject, the beholder feels an irresistible urge to search such a picture for the tiny spark of contingency of the here and now with which reality has, so to speak, seared the subject, to find the inconspicuous spot where in the immediacy of that long-forgotten moment, the futureness so eloquently that we, looking back, may rediscover it, end quote. So photography itself looks backward and forward, preserving a moment from the past as it anticipates a future viewer. In his tribute to Douglas, Johnson announces himself as the future viewer who has answered the hail of the photograph. He enters into the image to produce a new vision of self composed of photographic fragments across time. In Douglas's daguerreotype, Johnson sees an image to preserve, but also one to transform. 
calling attention with his transposed part to the image of Douglas rather than the man himself. He both venerates and dodges the conserving and conservative pull of the photograph. Repeating the image with a difference, Johnson heeds the call of the past but is not contained by it. Johnson's self-portrait after Douglas enacts a doubled temporal disruption. He re-performs Douglas's pose for the camera, even as Douglas crafted his own pose according to the dictates of middle class and heroic portraiture. As Rebecca Schneider has argued, quote, the pose is a kind of hail cast into a future moment of its invited recognition, end quote. As the pose reiterates a past gesture and seeks future recognition, so does the photograph, as we've seen, both record a past moment and seek a future viewer. Johnson's performance highlights the photograph's temporal play, seeking a future viewer by reenacting Douglas's pose from the past. Underscoring that the photograph is always of the past, even as it foretells a future in the present, Johnson's self-portrait after Douglas performs the fugitive time of photography. Ultimately, Johnson's self-portrait takes one back to Douglas and to Miller's famous daguerreotype of the orator. In that image, one might glimpse a spark of the profound social shifts Douglas anticipated with the end of slavery and the proliferation of photography. His portrait, circa, his portrait circa 1847 to 52 catapults one to a past moment in which the future was uncertain, in which it was fugitive. The daguerreotype registers a radical transformation in Douglas's own alienation, for it marks a moment when he could legally claim self-ownership and chose to announce that status through the objectification of the photograph. Looking back, one might see flickering in the unstable daguerreotype a new form of personhood in the making. The transformation of subject into alienable property is the legacy of both slavery and photography, a legacy embodied in the fugitive slave who fashioned himself photographically. Unlike the devastating alienation of slavery, however, the objectification of photography might prove productive it might serve self-critique and, so, and social progress. Finally, then, this is the legacy of photography that Douglas understood looking forward and Johnson understands looking back. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Sean. That was um, incredibly enlightening, but also uh, really made me rethink about what daguerreotypes actually do and what portraiture actually tells us about the history of uh, race um, issues in America, but also thinking about um, particularly seeing, I suppose, Douglas age yes. over all of those yeah. slides and thinking about the ways in which he constantly represented himself and how many of um, his um, uh, relations, friends, would never actually be represented in the same way, that they are non-represented. So it's really so much actually to think about in that paper. So uh, we're going to take questions on the floor. And I think there is a thing going around. Really the first question, Andres. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 
I think another one of those changes implicit in the technologies that he's using is of audience. Uh, I said it because it's daguerreotype and ambrotype up until 1856, if I'm reading your dates, if I'm remembering these correctly. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be mostly in the uh, sort of case that one would have uh, that would close and be an object that you would really keep close to your body or close to hand, meaning it's something for you only, it's not reproducible, or for, uh, it's a gift for a friend, a family member. And then later with um, the other technologies like the carte de visite, then it becomes a public image, one that's so much more disseminated. I wonder then, does his uh, understanding of what the photo can do to objectify in this um, positive way change with the, with the technology from something that's a kind of, for lack of a better term, phototherapy? I'm thinking of um, Joe Spence. Uh-huh. That's really self-directed about his own understanding of himself. Mm-hmm to something that's more like the fashioning of a public image that is much more about changing perceptions because of the dissemination of the image, um, a product of this kind of self-fashioning. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I guess I am, I am seeing you know, Douglas crafting his image for himself, but also always for a public. You know, I think he's always attending to the eyes of others looking, right? And so that, you know, seeing oneself as another might, I think, is always in his mind and the way he's thinking about um, an image even that we might consider quite private. And Douglas did gift daguerreotypes and ambrotypes, so um, even though they certainly didn't circulate like the carte de visite, they, they did circulate um, to some degree. But I think, I think that you're, you're highlighting something that I need to think about further, which is the, the proliferation, like not only how many images there are of of Douglas, um, and there's this wonderful recent book by uh, John Stoffer and Zoe Trod and Celeste uh, Marie Bernier, where they have tried to track down every single photograph of Douglas and proclaim that he is the most photographed American of the 19th century. Um, so there's the proliferation in, in that sense, but then the circulation, right, as, as Douglas becomes a celebrity, right, which he clearly is, you know, on the speaking circuit. Um, and I think that's that's some of the kind of anxieties or reservations that he's getting to when he talks about, you know, uh, the problem of becoming a fixed fact before the public, that this can also be a kind of conservative force that the photograph can, can produce um, as it circulates. So, okay. Just uh, thank you for that really very interesting and dense and enjoyable. Um, I've just got two questions. One, just to follow up a little bit. Um, as he travelled around the country, did he in fact distribute images of himself while he was being an orator? Um, does that parallel the kind of circulation of images of, say, Sojourner Truth and yeah. people like that to publicise her work? So that's one kind of question. And, but the other one, the, the part I found a little puzzling was the intellectual property part of your argument. Mm-hmm. And I think it would help us if you would tell us something about the actual laws of intellectual property that were in play at this specific time. Otherwise, we'll back-project from the present, and that wouldn't, wouldn't be appropriate. Yeah. So first, um, I, I, don't, I don't know that Douglas sold his um, photographs like Sojourner Truth famously did, right, and said, you know, I sell the shadow to support the substance. 
Um, but it was it was common um, for abolitionist groups to circulate and sell images um, just to raise funds for the cause of abolition. But I'm not aware um, that Douglas actually was selling them to support himself in, in any way. So that um, to answer the first question. And then for the second question, I really am um, relying pretty heavily on Stephen Best's uh, book, Fugitive Properties, to think about intellectual property law and um, shifts that you know he suggests not just photography, I'm most interested in photography here, but that the ways in which different forms of mechanical reproduction, also of the voice, um, it create a new kind of problem in um, intellectual property law. And there are even, um, uh, Jane Gaines has really interesting uh, early work about um, the portrait of Oscar Wilde and uh, the way um, property law was configured around the, the portrait of Oscar Wilde a, a little bit later in the 1890s. Um, so uh, the whole issue of who owns the photograph, um, who can claim to own the photograph, is it the photographer or is it the subject represented? And in the case of Oscar Wilde, there um, was an, an early moment in which um, it seemed to be leaning towards the subject actually photographed being the person who could claim, as performer, who could claim to own the image. Um, and then it later went with the photographer. So, um, yeah, I think that this, I, I appreciate the call to look at this a little bit more closely. Right, and, and yeah, I think there's um, interesting scholarship, too, about how slave owners then um, sometimes commissioned those images, um, but then owned them and um, controlled them. And um, like Louisa Piquet actually uh, tried to have images of herself sent, um, I think, to her mother, and was often thwarted in that attempt. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it's a good question. I think that, you know, technically it would be the person who owned the person who would also own the image. Mm -hmm. Although I think that enslaved people did use photography to subvert that and to claim self-possession. Thank you for that talk. I just wanted to ask about um, <clears throat> the power of photography. Obviously, what we see is that he's having a picture of a, a dignified self uh -huh. and, um, and portraying that to the people and saying that you are a dignified people and encouraging them that way. Are they also using pictures of lynching and, and the injustice that's happening during that time 
to show to people and say, look at the injustice that is happening here uh, for their cause for the abolition of slavery. Yeah, so um, lynching photographs start to... Uh, so the height of lynching in the United States is the 1890s. And um, Ida B. Wells uh, was a journalist and famous anti-lynching activist. And she actually reappropriated photographs of lynching um, to uh, use them as evidence for her anti-lynching campaign. So, and she started to do that, that as, as early as 1892. Um, so, yeah, so just sort of at the very end of Douglas's life, maybe that practice might have started, yeah. But certainly, like, in the... Um, even before uh, photographs of lynching, um, I, I showed the Agassiz Zili images. I mean, there was a, a violent tradition of photographic representation of black bodies that Douglas and others were absolutely trying to contest um, with the portraits of, of dignified status. Thank you for your presentation. Just following on from the, uh, the question before the last one okay. about the role of white um, anti-slavery, white abolitionists, mm -hmm. and perhaps their use of uh, photography in furthering the cause. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is, is that a comment or a question? Oh, I'm just asking whether yeah. there's any um, information about uh, about the use of photography by white abolitionists because it came up in the... If the owner of the slaves were the owners mm -hmm. of the photographs, there might also be a role for, uh, you know, white um, anti-slavery activists to employ um, photography in, in their cause. And, and I think they certainly did. And, you know, Douglas was in league with Garrison for a long time and, yeah, collaborating and working together. So, yes, I, I think they clearly did. But, yeah, the, the circulation of the former slave was the image that, yeah, that was the image that would be circulated. Um, yeah, more than the portrait of the white abolitionist. Yeah. Thank you so much for introducing us to this aspect of um, Douglas's legacy and also for this contribution to the uh, history of US photography. You uh, talked about Frederick Douglass as uh, an orator, or you referred to him as an orator, also as an abolitionist. Uh, I like to think of him, after listening to your talk, I like to think of him as an art critic and a philosopher of art as well. And I'm just thinking... Uh, it, well, I'm interested in your thoughts on the potential for this kind of research for, to be used as a, as a way to disrupt the canon uh, dis and also to transform the discourse to allow uh, a diversity of voices. And maybe um, if so someone like Sir Joyner Truth mm -hmm. also had uh, thoughts or analysis of the potential of something like photography. Uh, well, she certainly practiced photography in a really interesting way. Um, and uh, she herself didn't write um, or read, and she had really interesting... Uh, you know, she had opportunities to learn to read and write and um, actually decided not to do that uh, 
for interesting um, reasons. Um, but I, I guess one of the things that so I, I co-edited a book called Pictures in Progress, you know, titled after Douglas's lecture, and it's about early African American photography in the 19th century. And so um, one of the things that I'm really interested in thinking about is um, thinking about how photographed subjects can be said to practice photography. So not only photographers, and there were African-American photographers um, working in the States in the 19th century, but not terribly many. And so I'm interested in how like, consumers of photography were also um, uh, using photography to make all kinds of cultural arguments and to um, you know, challenge existing representations of uh, race and personhood. So, um, so that's one of the ways that I've been trying to think about you know, future pathways. Um, so just to think about the act of being photographed as, as a photographic practice. And I think we see that with Douglas, you know, I don't know that Douglas ever made a photograph, but he had so many made of him. I won't be happy if I went home without asking this one. Okay. <laughs> this is about, um, obviously, during this time, the literacy rate of the African-Americans was very low, of, if not, not almost. Um, and how is that photography, do you think photography helped in terms of, they will have an identity crisis, obviously, they're already in an identity crisis. They moved from being slave to um, servants or... Um, do you think photography will help in terms of disrupted families and all that kind of stuff? Having some kind of uh, a collection saying, if we have a picture of a family saying that this is, this used to be someone, some kind of preserving history of a family, did it help in that way? Because they cannot write about their family or anything. At least they can take a picture of it and saying that this is, this is someone in you your great-grandfather or something. So this generation can have uh, a linkage to the past. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, as a, as a force against the social death that slavery created, right? And um, I, I think absolutely photography could be used in that way. Um, Douglas was, of course, highly literate and wrote you know, many autobiographies and was this amazing public speaker, um, and yeah, oftentimes was you know such a good speaker that people didn't believe that he could ever have been enslaved. Um, but I, I do think that photography would definitely could definitely be a tool. And, and Douglas even says that right that one of the things that photography will enable it will keep it will keep our family members present. It will keep family members close. He says that literally. It's interesting that um, Laura Simpson also talks about photography in black households in America as constantly reminding uh, themselves that they are present, that they, are, that they exist, yeah. and, uh, and Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks too, right, too, right. That, that, um, that history of um, self-representation in the household. Mm -hmm. So it's really, yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot more to explore there, I'm sure. Uh, another question. Hi, thank, thank you for an amazing lecture. Um, I wondered if Frederick... Douglas had anything to say about Matthew Brady and Alex Gardner and the whole group that photographed the Civil War? 
and what oh, happened with them? Yeah, interesting. Um, not, not that I know of, but uh, Douglas was photographed by Brady. Um, yeah, he was photographed by Brady. So, so that's interesting. And it, yeah, it, it would. I wish that I knew of a text in which he addressed Brady's photographs, but I don't know of one. Rashid's representation of himself mm -hmm. um, in regards to Douglas and considering Bell Hooks and Norma Simpson of course thinking about uh, the self-representation and the, the, the idea of uh, constantly repeating mm -hmm. the forming and becoming of self. Mm -hmm. uh, so was this series that he enacted uh, larger than your showing here and uh, what else could we anticipate seeing? Yes, and so, and as, I think this is the only one in which Rashid Johnson himself, you know, is present. But that, um, what is it, the New Negro Escapist Social and Athletic Club? Yeah, um, yeah, right. Yeah, so there, it it is a series, and um, it's it's men, it's African American men, and in many, in, they are sort of reenacting other African American men from the past. Um, and I, I think there's something that I need to explore further, which is the, um, the humor in it and the kind of, um, you know, I see this as a, a respectful homage to Douglas, but also one that's poking fun a little bit, you know, that's that's, uh, that's, and using that to distance as well, like to both celebrate and, and distance. Um, so not to be captured and contained by the, by the image or by the legacy yeah. as well. Yeah. I was just going to ask a, a quick question about um, uh, the, the, I don't know if you're, you can comment on the way the daguerreotype that's already been touched on is kind of intended for a private audience or an individual to look at one, one by one. Of course, the um, contemporary work, you, see, you mentioned it was large format, it's intended for the wall. Um, is, there, is there something to be said for that and how um, it's evolved over time and also just looking at, at it in terms of an art critic perspective and what Rashid's doing in terms of making it for the wall Whereas, by its very virtue, by virtue of the media, the daguerreotype, it, it wasn't intended the same way. Um, yeah, yeah, I just wondered yeah, about your, that. Your, yeah, your question is also, um, you know, making me realize that this slide, which you've seen a lot of, is completely false, right? Like the daguerreotype, it's actually large. Um, the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, owns this daguerreotype, and it's it's a full plate, so it's actually pretty big for a daguerreotype, but it's you know, this big and Rashid Johnson's image is huge. So yeah, there, there is also a kind of false comparison happening there that I could be a little bit more attentive to. But I thought you were going to ask me the reenactment photo that you asked <laughs> <laughs> earlier today. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just do we know much about Samuel J. Miller, who the uh, photographer... Did he have a gallery, a Daguerrean gallery? Do we know? Um, yeah, he, and so this is where, so um, 
the Art Institute dates this 1847 to 52, and which I have uh, preserved in my talk. But um, in the new compendium about all of the Frederick Douglass photographs, they are arguing that probably the later date, 1852, right. makes more sense right. because, you know, kind of tracing when Douglass might have been in Akron, Ohio, um, where yeah. Samuel J. Miller was located. I suspect that the kind of private-public division between the Degoe Club and the Cart isn't as, as, as strong. This is probably displayed publicly mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a gallery space. Mm-hmm. So I think you can't say to give it like private, can't public. I think it's more of a kind of blur. Some of those, I think, are case some of, Yeah, some of the... But some if this of one's a large showed, one... Yeah, oops, that, sorry. That being a whole plate, but some of the yeah. And there could have been several made at the one sitting, so... And Brady had a gallery, and they were you know, publicly displayed, so... Uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe Miller did too. I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's quite possible. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for your wonderful questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.